Um, this morning, we are continuing our walk together, mentioned through the book of Acts. And two weeks ago, uh, we heard a model sermon preached by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved. By the way, I had not noticed this until a sermon I listened to just this past week. But does anybody remember how many Israelites died in the wilderness in Exodus 32 on the day that God gave the law to Moses? You want to take a guess? 3,000. 3,000. And then when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. How cool is that connection? And then last week, we examined a model church exemplified by the koinonia of the early church. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the model disciple. Props to Pastor Thad for giving me the title for this message he said, you, you know, you got an opportunity here to keep the model theme going. Originally, I'd planned on calling this sermon Following in Jesus' Footsteps because that's what a model disciple does. Model disciple strives to follow in his or her master's footsteps. One ancient Jewish blessing went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow in his footsteps so closely that you're covered in his dust. And not just Peter and John it doesn't just go for the apostles that we're going to read about in this story from Acts chapter 3. That goes for all of us, all of us still today, 2,000 years later, as disciples of Jesus are called to follow in his footsteps. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So how do we do that? What does that mean for us to follow Jesus? Big picture, I think it means two things. Two things. Jesus devoted his three-and-a-half-year ministry here on earth to two things. Matthew 4.23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus came to bring physical restoration, healing the infirmed, feeding the hungry, caring for the afflicted. And secondly, he came to offer us spiritual restoration, teaching God's word, casting out demons, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. So for you and I to be model disciples, to follow our rabbi's example, we've got to look after both people's physical well-being and their spiritual well-being. We're not one or other, are we? We have bodies, we are souls. Jesus took on a body to prove that bodies are important. Most churches fall off one side of the horse or the other, though, don't they? There are lots of churches out there that run soup kitchens and homeless shelters, literacy and community development programs, and they care really well for people's physical needs. But without pointing people to Jesus, all they're really doing is giving folks full bellies, a good education, and a roof over their heads on their way to hell. And then, there are many of us in the evangelical church especially who are guilty of swinging the pendulum so far in the other direction in our reaction against the so-called social gospel that we can preach doctrine at folks all we want till we're blue in the face. But the old adage remains true that people don't care what you know until what? They know that you care. And the Apostle James might rightly ask us if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, caring for their physical needs, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we want to be both and disciples who seek both physical and spiritual healing for others. And we get a beautiful picture of that this morning in Acts chapter 3 in the examples of Peter and John. Originally, this was going to be a two-point message because uh, you see there in your bulletins, physical, spiritual, two points. Got a little carried away. I managed to find 18 sub-points. Um, and so all of it I decided was too good to cut, and so uh, I decided at the last minute just to split this sermon into two parts instead, and so this is going to get a little confusing this morning. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11 only together, our calling to meet physical needs next week, since I'll be on the beach in Florida, and I had already asked Pastor Thad to preach on Acts chapter 4, planning for this to be one message I didn't want to throw off his sermon prep, and so he's going to skip ahead in the story, and then two weeks from now, we're going to back up and cover the second half of chapter three. I think they'll fit together enough that it won't be too confusing for you. So uh, I invite you to stand with me for the first half of Acts 3, verses 1 through 11, as we hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it records for us these amazing nonfiction, true stories of what you have done in and through the lives of your people in history. And Father, that it's not just history, that the same Spirit that gave healing, that gave the power 
to walk again to this lame man 2,000 years ago, that same spirit that empowered that miracle still lives in your people this morning, still lives in the hearts of those of us in this room right now who have trusted in you in faith. And so, Father, I pray that now as we sit under the preaching of your word, seek to understand your word, that we would not just seek to interpret it, but to apply it to our lives. God, how do you want to use us today still as your people to bring healing and hope and restoration to those who are broken and hurting and wounded all around us in the world? Would you give us our heart? Give us your heart for them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So before we dive in, I want to say a quick word up front about healing, since that is the context, of course, for this passage. There's really a spectrum of views in the church on the subject of healing from those who are dubbed cessationists because they believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, tongues and prophecy and healing were given exclusively to the first century apostles and have since ceased to exist in the church, all the way to charismatic continuationists, some of whom go so far as to say, if you don't personally manifest these gifts, miraculous gifts of the Spirit, then you are not a true believer now. I want to be up front. Personally, I reject both of those extremes. I don't see enough evidence biblically for the idea that these miraculous gifts have altogether ceased. In fact, I think we see experiential evidence that they still do. Today And yet clearly the claim that every believer must possess every gift or any one particular specific gift is unbiblical. This is it's a second tier theological issue, not one that we should divide the church over, even if you disagree with me on this, but cards on the table, gun to my head. I would just personally, for what it's worth, uh, identify somewhere between a cautious continuationist and a concentric cessationist position, if that means anything to you, even though I don't, I don't like either of those labels. Um, but my theology would be that God worked miracles in the New Testament for the expressed purpose of validating and establishing the gospel message, and thus the miraculous gifts have mostly ceased in the mainstream church and in evangelized areas today, but still appear, especially in unreached areas as an aid to spreading the gospel. To me, that position seems to make the best sense of both the biblical evidence and experiential evidence. Plus, it was the view of Martin Luther and John Calvin, so it's pretty good company to be in theologically. But that being said, I want to make it clear I fully recognize that there are still people right here all around us, even in St. Louis, who have never heard the true biblical gospel and so if God wants to display his power to them by working a miracle in you for his glory, then who am I to argue with that? Actually, I want to be someone who prays for that. So I want you to know as your pastor, if you get sick and you ask me to pray for you, I'm not just going to pray that God's will would be done. God's will is going to be done anyway. We already know that. No, I'm going to pray boldly for your healing because I believe that God can do that. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him in the name of the Lord. As a matter of fact, as an elder council at our monthly meeting just yesterday, we laid hands on and 
prayed over one of our members here at West Hills for her healing because we believe in the power of prayer. And yet, we also note that James doesn't advise us to fire our physicians. Luke, the author of Acts, was a physician. He didn't hang up his stethoscope when he got saved so he could go pray instead. Go to your doctor and pray. That's the message. All right, so seven exhortations for disciples of Jesus striving to follow in his footsteps by offering physical healing to those in need. For starters, we need to be available. Number one, be available. Verse one, we hear now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were at the right place at the right time. They were exactly where a disciple should be at the ninth hour, the set-aside time culturally in those days for prayer. They were in the temple. Moreover, Peter and John purposely put themselves in a position to be bothered by someone else's need. The temple was the center of Jewish community life, and beggars knew that. So you knew that when you went to the temple, you were going to encounter physical needs. Just this past week, our discipleship group, my discipleship group was meeting at Starbucks. We were sitting at the table with our Bibles open, and a barista came over, and she dropped this note. I think I got a picture for you. I thought it was so cool. I just had to share it with you. She wrote a note to us. It makes me feel welcome to see you guys every week. I feel like if I talk about my faith at work, I'll be punished. Thank you for being here. Sincerely, lonely Christian barista. I said, guys, I know that Starbucks is a soulless, God-forsaken company. I, I, know that it's, I know that it's distracting to pr- try and pray together with Britney Spears blasting in the background. But this is why I love to meet publicly for Bible study. Because stuff like this, relationships like this with Emma, they don't happen if we just hide in our holy huddles together at the church building. We've got to make ourselves available. We've got to put ourselves in, in a position to be bothered by someone else's need. How about you? Do you treat that person whose, whose car breaks down in front of you on the side of the road as an inconvenience or as an opportunity? Do we put ourselves purposely in positions where we know we're going to encounter physical needs? Do we cross the sidewalk or change lanes at the stoplight to avoid having to talk and be confronted by the homeless man begging on the street corner? Or do we change sidewalks, change, change lanes to confront him? Do we go volunteer at the shelter to seek him out? Are we making ourselves available to be used by God? And I'll give you a quick bonus attribute, an eighth one, of a model disciple. We need to be asking God for those opportunities. The text doesn't say this explicitly, but I bet, I just bet that Peter and John, before they even left for the temple that morning, that afternoon, I bet they prayed, God, would you use us today in some way with someone to display your power and your glory and your love to someone in need? We should ask for these opportunities to be bothered by needs. Number two, we need to be attentive. Be attentive. 
It's not enough to simply be available to meet others' physical needs. We've got to actually notice those needs when they arise around us. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, the lame man asked to receive alms, as he no doubt had from thousands of other passerbys that day. But how many of them even noticed this man? much less responded to his request. And even the ones who did were probably quick to drop a few coins in his hand without so much as a word so they could hustle off to make sure they got a good seat for the worship service. I don't know if you ever heard that story of that new pastor, first week at his new church, who undercover bossed his church by dressing up, disguising himself as a homeless man and sitting on his church's front porch steps or front front steps as people were walking in on Sunday. And then he stayed in costume as he stepped into the pulpit and shared his experience from the morning, how he had been treated that morning. And then he preached on Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you gave me no welcome. Y'all thought my sermons were convicting. <laughs> Peter and John would have passed the test, though. Listen to how Peter and John responded to this poor, lame beggar in verse 4. We hear that Peter directed his gaze at the man, as did John. They saw him. When others ignored him, they saw him. They were attentive to this man's need. He wasn't an inconvenience. This was an opportunity to minister to someone who was hurting. And I just wonder, I wonder how many of the needs around us today, physical, emotional, spiritual needs around us, go unmet because we're just too busy to notice. We're just too caught up in our own lives to pay attention. You you hear hear these Stories all the time, a young man shoots up a school, a young girl tragically takes her own life, and people say, we had no idea he was even struggling, she was even hurting. No one noticed. Or it could be as simple as a friend texting you, calling you, but for the third time this week, no agenda, just wants to talk, you're starting to honestly get a little annoyed, like, I really don't have time to just chit-chat, but if we would take another minute and listen, really listen between the lines of what she's saying, what he's not saying, we'd realize that he's just really lonely. She just needs a a friend right now. You know what made Jesus so special? It wasn't just the miracles, the healings. It was how deeply he paid attention to everyone around him. Go read the Gospels. He saw people that everyone else overlooked, especially those who everyone else overlooked, the hurting, the broken. He noticed them. And he didn't just notice them. Number three, Jesus was affectionate toward them. He was affectionate toward them. He was compassionate. He was tender Nine times the gospel authors tell us that Jesus looked on those around him with compassion. 
The Greek word splenknizomai literally means to be moved all the way down to your bowels. That's how deeply Jesus was moved, cared for those around him. And his disciples will follow in his footsteps. This is my favorite part of the whole passage. Not even the miracle itself, but I love verse 4. B, second half of verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at the man, as did John, and they said, look at us. Look at us. Imagine that. How many people had passed by this man on their way to the temple, crossed the sidewalk to avoid talking to him? The really good Christians would have stopped long enough to dig out some spare change. But Peter and John didn't just look down on him. They crouched down. They got down on his level, and they invited this poor, lame beggar to lift his weary eyes and to look up at us. He feels so much shame from having to beg, so unworthy that his eyes have not even left the ground all day long, but they say, hey, hey, look at us. They make eye contact with him. That simple act makes him feel human again for the first time in God knows how long. They restore his dignity humanity. In Matthew chapter 8, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And for the leper, that was probably miracle enough. That someone saw him and loved him and cared for him enough to risk leprosy just to show him compassion. Brothers and sisters, if we want to help people the way that Jesus helped them, we have to start to see people the way that Jesus saw them. Do you see? Anybody know how to silence an iPad? Got it on airplane mode. Apparently you can still get text. Let's try that. We've got to see people the way Jesus saw them. Do you see your LGBTQ neighbor as an abhorrent apostate? Or do you see them as a confused, broken, but still beautiful, made in God's image, human, in need of healing? Do you see the immigrant, the refugee, as a leech mooching off your tax dollars or as a person. I'm not talking about your politics right now. I'm talking about personhood. I don't care what you think of the border wall or how you think people ought to come into this country. I'm talking about how you treat them once they do, regardless. Are they a person or a leech? Do we see the unwed, unexpected teenage mother as a monster for even considering aborting her baby or as a scared, lost, desperate person? 
And do we see her unborn baby not as an inconvenient clump of cells, but as a fragile, vulnerable, tenuous, but no less invaluable, precious human life? When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the thing, brothers and sisters. The lost, the hurting, the broken, they don't need our judgment. They need to know the good shepherd. They need to know his love for them, his affection for them, despite their sin. While they were yet sinners, Christ died for them, for love. Number four, we must be altruistic. Altruistic means unselfishly concerned for and devoted to the welfare of others. We read in verses 5 and 6, And the beggar fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. I told you, I believe that God still heals through our prayers today, but notice, Peter doesn't pray here. He doesn't say, listen, man, I've got no money for you, but give me a minute. I can go check with God. I can see if he wants to heal you. Hang tight for just a minute. No, this is name it and claim it type stuff from Peter. But I believe, as I told you, my theology, that God gave that power uniquely to the first century apostles for the initial establishment of the gospel in the first century church to just name drop Jesus and then claim healing for others in his name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. No one today has that power. Benny Hinn, Todd White, all the other faith healers out there, they're full of crap. If you come to me asking for prayer and healing, I'm not going to name it and claim it, but I am going to pray because only God has the power to heal you. Even Peter says that here. You, you read ahead to verse 12. He says, look, why are you looking at me like I did it? This was God. But here's the really interesting thing I think about our calling to meet people's physical needs today because we no longer have that unique apostolic spiritual gift of healing, you and I might rightly invert what Peter says here. Think about that. We might say to the lame beggar that we meet on the street corner today, I don't possess the miracle gift of healing, but what I do have is silver and gold. I can help pay for your medical bills. And what I do have, I give to you. What has God given you that you can altruistically give away to help others? Abby Keene uses her gift as a chiropractor to bring physical healing to those who otherwise couldn't afford treatment down at Bridge of Hope. Kelly Enderlong uses her gifts as a substitute teacher to teach literacy to underprivileged kids through Hope Education. Amanda Fullerton uses her gift cooking to make dinner for those recovering from the hospital. Brian Arbison uses his gift and finances to work with folks here struggling to manage money well. 
the list goes on and on, the examples of you all. So many of you who give above and beyond of your own silver and gold to this church to bring not only spiritual healing through the ministry of the gospel, but physical healing to meet real, this side of eternity needs in the lives of those around us. When you give to West Hills, you help the widow here afford her rent payment for the month. You help the woman abandoned by her husband afford the counseling she needs. You help purchase cars for missionaries overseas. I would just say, on behalf of all of us, all the folks who physically benefit from those physical needs that you help meet, myself included, because y'all feed my kids. Thank you. Thank you for being the model disciples that so many of you here at West Hills are, week after week, with your hands, your minds, your hearts, your gifts, and your checkbooks. You say right along with Peter and John here, what I do have, I give to you. You are altruistically generous. I'm grateful for that. Number five, we should be ancillary. Ancillary. The alliterative synonyms just get more and more arcane. But ancillary means subordinate or secondary, serving only to assist. Listen to how Peter exercises his unique apostolic gift of healing in verse 6b. He declares, what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Peter doesn't say, by the power invested in me, everybody gather around and watch what I'm about to do. Even Peter knew that he didn't possess intrinsically the power to heal anyone. It had to be Jesus' power flowing through him. Again, skip ahead to verse 12. We'll unpack it more two weeks from now. Others see the lame man dancing around. Everyone in the temple loses their minds over this miracle. They all start crowding around Peter like he's some kind of celebrity. And Peter says, men of Israel, why do you stare at us? Why are you looking at me? I'm just a vessel. As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Peter says, no, this was Jesus, the author of life. Peter knew he was totally subordinate to, dependent on, simply serving to assist Jesus. We have no power of our own. Any power that you and I or Peter or anyone else has is derivative from God. It's derived from our connection to Jesus who said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing. It's got to be God's power at work in us and through us. Now, if that was true for Peter, how much more so for you and I today. I'll be honest, if I was Peter, I probably would have been tempted to believe the hype, to let it go to my head. If I had miraculously healed someone and the whole temple just rushed up on me like I was Joe Burrow and I had just thrown the game-winning Hail Mary touchdown pass, hoping I'm prophetic, I think I would be tempted to let that go to my head, start thinking I was, I was hot stuff. We've got to remember, friends, when God in his grace you know, uses me to write a big check to someone in need. When God decides to use us to let us play just the tiniest part 
in accomplishing his own sovereign good purposes for someone else's life. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He, he allows us to play just a small role in meeting those needs because he loves not just that person, but he loves us. And he knows. He gets joy from including us in the beautiful, meaningful, redemptive, restorative kingdom work that he's doing all around us in the world. Remember, we're the ones who broke it in the first place with our sin. And God doesn't even need our help cleaning it up. It's like when my two-year-old son spills a gallon of milk all over the counter, the floor, the appliances, the dog. I don't need his help cleaning it up. In fact, I could do it more efficiently and more effectively without him. But I let him help, not just as a punishment, but so that he gets the joy that comes from cleaning up messes, from putting the world right. Ephesians 2.10 says, God created us for good works. This is what we're created for. God lets us live our purposes out, get the joy that comes from it. But we, we shouldn't forever forget that image. When we, we write that check, we feed that, we help that person, we, we have to remember to see ourselves as the two-year-old. Helping dad. That's all we bring to the table. We don't pat ourselves on the back. We point them to Jesus. Why are you looking at me? Jesus, he's, he's, he's the one helping through me. Giving our lives away to serve hurting people who, call, who God calls us to love, it's the least that we can do for all that God has done for us in Christ. Amen. So we're ancillary. And yet, because of who our Father is, number six, we should be audacious. Even though we're secondary, subordinate, we're just assistants, helpers, we should be audacious, extremely bold. Peter said, verse 7, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, lifted him off the ground. Imagine the boldness that that took. It's one thing to pray for someone's healing. It's another thing to grab their hand and stand them up and trust that it's happened. Because if this guy can't stand on his own two feet, if you misheard God's voice and God didn't really heal him, now you're just embarrassing the poor guy. You're actually going to look like a huge jerk for picking on him. And oh, by the way, you've just lost all your credibility. That gospel you were preaching last week on Pentecost about Jesus' resurrection power, who's believing the message now? Peter doesn't even bat an eye. No second guessing, no hesitation, just get up and walk. Jesus said, if you have faith like a single grain of a mustard seed, you will move mountains. So I reckon since Peter's not, even Peter's not moving mountains, I mean, it must mean his faith is like the size of a microscopic hair on the mustard seed. And then compared to his bold faith, that he displays here, my faith must be like a single protein molecule that makes up the hair on the mustard seed or something. 
Point being, I need to pray. We need to pray for more boldness in our faith and in our faithfulness to minister to people. How might God be calling you this morning to audaciously serve him and others? We've got at least two couples here at West Hills in their 20s who have in just the past month approached Polly and I to discuss adoption. Friends, that is bold. In a world that says, don't even think about getting married till your 30s, sow, sow your wild oats. And then once you do, for God's sake, delay kids as long as you possibly can, savor your freedom to say, you know, actually, I think I'm gonna fork out tens of thousands of dollars to raise someone else's kids as my own because I believe so strongly that every child deserves a good home and because I take so seriously God's calling to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples for God's glory that I believe raising kids is one of the very best ways I can do that. That's bold. I will gladly give away the best years of my life to raising someone else's kids. That's not for everyone. What is God calling you to audaciously do to serve him and others? Lastly, number seven, if we're going to meet physical needs, we're going to have to be accepting. We have to accept people as people, not as projects. I love the picture that we're left with here in verses 8 through 11 of this man leaping up and entering the temple with Peter and John, praising God. I'm struck by the fact that he was with them. Verse 11 says he clung to Peter and John. He wouldn't even let go of them not because he couldn't walk on his own anymore, but because he's so excited, he's so grateful. And guess what? Peter and John are so excited for him. They are so joyful with him that they just let him go on clinging. You know, it's one thing to give up your Saturday to go serve at the soup kitchen, stand behind the counter at a distance, scoop the soup, scrub the plates, and then drive home and feel really good about helping people. But what about sitting down with the folks you're serving and eating a meal together with them? That's different. Because what if they cling? What if they ask you for money? For a ride across, all the way across town to the Salvation Army? What if their smell clings to you? Did you know that homelessness has its own distinctive smell? If you can't close your eyes right now and smell the smell of homelessness, that might mean that you're not spending enough time around people with severe physical need. I've come to realize over the years that despite our preconceived notions and stereotypes, most people don't just want to hand out. They don't want to feel like a charity case. Most people want someone who cares about them, who accepts them, warts and all, smells and all. Someone who doesn't just see them as a means to an end, to get your gold star Christian merit badge, 
someone who won't just serve soup to them, but who will eat soup with them. You know, Jesus was called by the good religious people of his day, a friend of sinners. He knew what homeless smelled like. Jesus knew what prostitutes dressed like. Jesus knew what addicts acted like because Jesus was friends with them. Are we? Listen, the only way we will be is if we accept the truth that we really are no different than they are. That we are all just sinners in need of a Savior. And those of us who have received help, eternal help from Jesus when we were otherwise utterly helpless, hopeless, more so than anyone at the soup kitchen, dead in our sins, we ought to be the most helpful, servant-hearted disciples, followers of Jesus there are. May it be so of us.